On Friday, the affidavit that the FBI used to obtain a search warrant uh, for searching former President Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago was made public in a redacted version. We had the R. Kelly trial continue this week in federal court here in Chicago. And with us to break down the legalities is Damon Sharonis. He is one of the fiercest uh, criminal defense attorneys in Chicago, a founder of Sharonis, Parenti, and Levitt. Uh, He advocates for people charged with all kinds of crimes, federal, white-collar, violent crime drug and sex crimes. He actually represented uh, film mogul Harvey Weinstein in a sexual assault case in New York, and he's been involved in the mob secrets trial and uh, representing uh, one of our former disgraced governors. Uh, Welcome to the show, Damon. How are you? Hey, Karen, how are you? Always, always a pleasure to talk to you. It's such a great introduction. Yes. And, you know, you, you get tagged with the, with the people you represent. And I don't know Proudly. if that's, that's good or Proudly. bad, but it's kind of the way it works. <laughs> Proudly, Karen. Proudly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this, um, the affidavit. And, I, you know, I, we've been ta- everyone's been talking about it a lot. And I don't want to, you know, belabor the point. I also want to just say I'm going to try not to be political here. And I know a lot of uh, people text in the minute we start talking about this you know, you hate Trump, you love Trump. Like, this is not about that. We're trying to explain things so people can make up their own minds and and justifiably so. So, Damon, can you tell uh, our listeners, what is this affidavit? And what is the bait? What what does it do for purposes of getting that search warrant? Sure. So the search warrant is like the end result. And the affidavit is what a judge needs to review before issuing a search warrant. So, in, in any case, including this one, uh, usually a law enforcement officer, a special agent in the, with the FBI in this case, details for the issuing judge the facts and circumstances to lead them to believe and to ask the court to believe, one, that a crime has been committed. And in this case, that fruits of that crime will be found here at the Mar-a-Lago Resort. So you have to sort of lay out your cards to the judge to say, this is what we think happened based on our investigation. And is it enough, Your Honor, to determine a crime has probably been committed? And we're going to find the evidence of that crime where we're looking. And is I've heard some pundits on various stations say, well, you know, the judge is just going to rubber stamp it and issue the warrant. Is that the case? Or does this judge really look at it and make sure that he believes that there's probable cause? Well, I would say in this case, I can't I can't say this for every case, but I think you could be sure that whoever issued uh, this, the issuing judge in this case, made sure that all of the uh, I's were dotted and T's were crossed. Now, there can certainly be a disagreement as to whether it actually lays out a probable cause standard. I'm sure, you know, Trump's lawyers would say, you know, there are some some missing elements here. But, uh, no, I'm sure this was looked at very carefully and not just a rubber stamp. And I, and I know of certain situations where warrants have been rejected by judges. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, I think everyone should, you know, who's interested in this and really wants to start talking about it, should just look at the affidavit. It's, it's got a lot of black marks on it. A uh, lot. A lot of black marks. Um, but, you know, WashingtonPost.com, it's all over the Internet. But, but read it. It's readable. It's in English. And it sets forth the facts as the agent uh, knows them. So, is there anything in this affidavit, Damon, that you see that you thought was uh, unusual or you thought that was damning or you thought that, you know, was compelling? What was your thought when you read it? Well, I mean, what I thought was interesting is, of course, the government is going to try to uh, position this as a significant national security risk. Right. They, they want to, I think, let the issuing judge know and the, uh, you know, the public know to some extent now that it's been released that it was their position that American security was at risk because of these documents that were being improperly held by President Trump. So they framed it 
in a very uh, you know significant fashion by by doing that. They didn't want to make it look like these were just personal letters, you know. And what happens? And I've got cases where I've had to get national security clearance, and it's all detailed in the affidavit. I mean, there are so many different hoops you have to jump through. Uh, to look at certain documents. There are certain places that you can look at documents and you can't look at them in other places for obvious reasons when you're dealing with uh, issues of intelligence. Um, you know, they, they keep that stuff uh, as sacred. And their position is, look, this can't be around the resort in Florida. So, you know, to the extent we don't really know exactly what was found at this point or what the, the substance of it was, but this affidavit certainly points out that these documents were significant. And, and I also thought it was significant. You know, one of the things I was thinking is, you know, Trump is probably going to want to just have this looked at as a disagreement between how to return documents, because there's that whole litany back and forth as to, uh, you know, the FBI and the DOJ trying to get these back through other means. So I think that's sort of where these issues are, are maybe going. Well, in, in it, 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 it's from what I understand, there were months that went by where the DOJ was saying, give us those documents back. It looks like you have some things. And there, was no, there were negotiations. And then finally, there was a, a bunch of documents that were actually given back to the DOJ. But for some reason, we now, you know, they find they they, they suspected uh, that there were additional documents that that should have been returned. Um, so there was an attempt by the government, from what you see, right, that that they were yeah. trying to get those documents back before the search warrant was issued. Sure, that that's detailed here, and I think that's something that you know, President, uh, former President Trump would use, um, you know, sort of as and maybe right or wrong. I'm not saying this is good or bad, but look, he was in the process of sort of trying to get this resolved, and they jumped the gun. I think that's what he how he would sort of play this off. Um, our news, uh, our news um, anchor just talked a little bit about the fact that it looks like that the the Florida a judge is going to issue an order um, mandating a special master to review the documents that were seized from Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate in order to determine. I, I'm not sure if it's attorney-client privilege. Can you tell our listeners, is this unusual? So that the, the, the warrant was issued out, out of Washington, D.C., and Trump's lawyers filed something in Florida saying we want a special master. Is, tell us what, that, what a special master is and why you think he filed it in Florida. Well, it's interesting. One of the things uh, in, the, in the warrant itself or in the affidavit talks about putting together a privilege team uh, from the FBI. In other words, agents who aren't working on this case to sort of review this stuff for privilege. And of course, as I think is, is President Trump's right, you know, he, he doesn't want to rely uh, on the FBI reviewing this. So what a special master is, it's usually a retired judge or someone like that who is there to sort of review these documents as a, as a neutral arbiter to determine if these documents include privileged information that the federal government shouldn't be looking at. Attorney-client privilege is one of those things. Um, I think a special master was actually appointed in the in the in the uh, investigation, I think President Trump is talking about uh, executive privilege, but it's basically a, a third party that comes in and can review this and say, "Look, you're not going to get this because it's protected by attorney-client privilege." Now, here you can bet the FBI has already looked at everything. Uh, you know, this is sort of late in the game for this. Right, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. The toothpaste is out of the tube on this one, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't put it back in. No, exactly. no. Um, okay, great. Let's take a break. We're talking to Damon. Sharonis. He is a founder of the law firm Sharonis, uh, Parente, and Levitt. Um, Damon, why don't you give out your contact information if anybody has criminal issues or questions for you? 
Sure. Uh, you can certainly find us on our website. That's uh, just at Sharonis Law, C-H-E-R-O-N-I-S-L-A-W.com. And that has all our contact information. All right. We'll be back in a minute. Talking with criminal defense lawyer Damon Sharonis. He's the best. Damon, you're the best. A uh, couple last questions kind of on the, the Trump thing, and then we're going to move to R. Kelly. You know, and I, I, I hear I hear this. Uh, it's political. It's a political witch hunt. It's um, politics on and on. Um you are up against federal prosecutors every day, and you have been for you know a long time. And although I know you're cordial to the people who are across the aisle from you, uh, but you you fight like crazy. And if there's something improper, you you hold them to it and you fight like 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 mad. But given your experience, what do you think about federal prosecutors and the the, the idea that the DOJ is politicized and that there are political considerations when it comes to these things? Uh, That's a good question. I think that, you know, you'll you'll probably never get to the truth of that. I think the truth is there are political considerations that go into these decisions. Uh, Unfortunately, the fact that it's political is not a defense to a criminal charge, right? I think uh, everything today is is politicized. And, you know, you're going to have Trump saying they're doing it for this reason. The Democrats are going to say it's a different reason. You know, at the end of the day, you can really just look at the facts and the law and the pundits are going to discuss it. But to your point, to your question, you know, I think it would be foolish to believe that politics don't play a role at times in these decisions, just like politics may play a role in President Trump not being charged. Right. Because you can bet they're going to be looking at more than just whether or not a law was broken. They're going to look at how this would affect, you know, our country, up, upheaval, uh, you know, the political process. All of those things go into decisions. So I definitely think there's a political aspect to it, uh, especially because you're dealing with the former president of the United States. Hey, that's a good point. And, and, um, and, and, and a prosecutor can consider ramifications of prosecution. Uh, you know, they, they don't have to prosecute every crime that's been committed, and um, they, they're going to pick and choose based upon their good judgment. And, and you're right, it could, could actually help them. Uh, it might. Yeah. Um, and just finally, I, I know you have represented people who have been in this limelight, whether they're in show business or they have political careers. And, you know, I watch um, as as big shot lawyers like you who represent who represent people who have public reputations. And, you know, I just can't help but but think it must be hard with someone like Donald Trump, who, well, first of all, he's very headstrong, of course, and doesn't necessarily listen to everyone. And that's how he's made his career is not listening to people and and doing being a maverick and being an entrepreneur but you know he he wants to preserve his reputation because he wants to run for president but yet he doesn't want to go to jail and so when you're a lawyer how do you advise someone to kind of focus on the legal parts of this rather than the publicity part of it you know i think that's a a great question and it's difficult in a high profile case and i will say that my opinion on it has maybe changed over the years Because as a lawyer, you want to control the narrative, you want to control the situation, and you don't want your client to say something that is going to hurt them in court or diminish their chances of of winning their case, right? But we're not the ones, the lawyers, who have to go through what these individuals are going through. And I'm not just talking about Trump. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, the media oftentimes are judged during executioner and somebody's reputation is destroyed. And how do you get that back? So if I have a client who is of a higher profile, or even not, and they want to say something about their case, I fully understand why they want to do it, because their character is being attacked rightly or wrongly. And sometimes it is wrongly. 
So you just got to draw a line uh, and hopefully your clients will listen to you that you can't say anything that's going to come back to haunt you um, because that can be devastating to somebody's case. But I, I, I used to be more along the lines of saying, don't say anything, but you know, I'm not the one who's getting attacked and you can understand people wanting to make certain statements and sometimes they can be beneficial. Well, they can. I mean, you know, if, if you uh, hate to say this, but you know, you, could you influence a potential jury pool by coming out strong and, and defending yourself in the media? And it just seems like cases are being won and lost in the media these days. Speaking, sure. speaking of high profile cases, Friday was the 10th day uh, of the trial of singer R. Kelly in federal court here in Chicago. Uh, as you may recall, he was convicted in New York on similar types of crimes, and he was sentenced to 30 years. He's now charged with sex crimes here. And also obstruction of justice in the idea that he was intimidating witnesses, paying off witnesses when he was charged back in 2008 for child pornography and other crimes. Um, what, you know, there have been a lot of, uh, one of the women who testified was a woman who apparently had sex with, um, on video, according to her, with a 14-year-old girl in R. Kelly. And I saw that the defense lawyers really went at her and uh, really just, you know, I think made her cry, actually. How, you know, did you follow this? I mean, obviously, we don't have cameras in the courtroom on this one. But, I mean, do you have to be careful when you... Um, when you cross-examine somebody who, who did something wrong, but maybe as a victim herself? Yeah, it's a hard line to walk. And I've been in that situation um, where I've had to cross-examine witnesses who, you know, who were talking about, you know, alleged sexual assaults and things like that. But, you know, it's not an easy job as a, as a defense lawyer, as I like to tell people. I mean, you're in a situation where these individuals are testifying and the prosecutor is going to ask for a sentence that in many cases might be the rest of somebody's life in jail. And if your client's position is I didn't do this or this person's lying, I'm still trying to figure out a nice way to ask those questions, Karen, because it's hard. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be over the top and gratuitous in your questioning but you got to ask hard questions and if those questions lead to tears so be it you know it's up to the jury to decide whether they're real or crocodile tears but you know you've got to ask difficult questions and in situations like that these types of cases when you're talking about you know sexual assault of a minor it's very hard to do but you know that's what we do we ask difficult questions and you can't always control you know how the public's gonna gonna view it and, you know, in this case, what I saw at least this year, this week, <clears throat> there were several witnesses, you know, who, who were complicit in some bad acts. And um, at least two of them had immunity from the government because they were obtaining these tapes and they were getting money from it. And, you know, they, they had possession of it, which itself is a crime. And so, you know, I, you know, dirtying up the, the um, witnesses seemed to be kind of what the, the goal was. But again, as you're saying, you got to be really careful with this because... Because you don't want the jury siding with, um, you know, with with the witness, right? Well, yeah. Well, the hard part about a cooperator, and you know, that's the lifeblood of federal prosecutions. You you get a cooperator, you offer them their freedom, and then they testify, right? If I did that, if I made those offers to a witness, I'd be in jail. But right. they offer these wonderful things to these cooperators as in a defense attorney. You know, you've got to try to separate your client from that conduct. And that's not easy to do because often they're charged as co-conspirators. So you've got to get to the motive to lie that these people have, their inconsistencies and these benefits that they're getting. And you've got to hammer those. And and that's really the funnest part of being a lawyer, by the way, is just being able to cross-examine cooperating witnesses in court. I mean, I, I that's more fun than anything I can think of uh, a lawyer could do. But it's 
you know, it, it's complicated because, you know, prosecutors always get up in their closing arguments and say, oh, yeah, I didn't choose this witness. You know, Mr. Sharonis's client chose him and now he's attacking him. So it's it's a fine another fine line you've got to walk. No, you're, you're right, because some of these people, I, I wouldn't call them a little unsavory, <laughs> perhaps. But, you know, it wasn't it, it was R. Kelly who got these people around him to do all this dirty work. So, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. And the about other that. thing, just real quick, the other thing about this case that's interesting, and I, have, I haven't seen any of it, but I've you know, I, I follow it from time to time. I know the lawyers. I know they're they're working really hard on the case. But it seems like they have maybe inconsistent defenses as well, which right. probably causes for a little fireworks in the courtroom where you have, you know, uh, you know, R. Kelly saying one thing and then you know his the other defendant's lawyer saying something else and you know that, that can get very contentious in court when you have disparate or different defenses well right and and the prosecution loves that because everyone's oh, pointing their fingers at each other and uh and that's uh, that's that's about as good as you're going to get well another built-in advantage for yeah. the uh, federal prosecutors exactly exactly um and just one one other thing that I, that I, you know again I'm now I'm no R Kelly fan believe me uh, sure. but I was really surprised that the judge um, ruled or allowed jurors who had watched Surviving R Kelly that docu series um, that was so damning to him about all of the victims coming forward and talking about what a monster he was and all of these things and some of the jurors had seen the prospective jurors had seen the docu series and the judge said that's not a reason to get them off the jury. So, I mean, and I thought to myself, if I was sitting there as a prospective juror, you know, and I could be very fair, and I can, I'm a very open-minded person, but with having seen that, there's no way I could be fair. What, what, yeah, did, you, what you know, did you make of that? Well, you know, I've tried a bunch of cases in front of Judge Lionel Weber, who is, you know, one of the fairest judges in that building, and um, I have a lot of respect for him. And I think he actually made the right decision, but here, here's sort of the flip side to that. From what I've heard about jury selection is what Judge Lionel Weber said was, I'm not just going to strike somebody because they saw that. But what he has been doing is he's been very lenient or very helpful to the defense to get rid of jurors who may be on the fence, right? In other words, a lot of judges will try to rehabilitate jurors who say they can be fair and impartial when we all know they can't. But I heard that Judge Lionel Weber was just dismissing a lot of these jurors. What he basically said was, just because you saw this doesn't mean you can't be fair and impartial. Um, But if you did see this and that, you know, causes you concern and you don't think you can be fair and impartial, that will be a reason for you to go. So I just think his position was, we're not going to do this in a blanket approach. Got it. Uh, and I think that that's probably the right way to, to, to fall on something like this. Damon, can you hold with us for another segment? Sure. Okay. Sure. When we come back, we're going to be talking more to Damon Sharonis and taking your legal questions. 312-981-7200. We're talking to Damon Sharonis, criminal defense lawyer extraordinaire and friend and friend of the show. Good to have you. Thanks for hanging. I've got some more questions for you. Damon, uh, you represent Harvey Weinstein, the film mogul who was convicted uh, in New York. Um, I just read a very quick blurb that he had an appeal that was accepted by some court and uh, it was a positive thing for his case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a great it's a great thing. I, I actually spoke to him about it last week. Uh, he was granted basically leave to appeal to the state Supreme Court of New York. And I think the numbers are like only 1.5% of all cases that try to do that. It's actually granted. And the chief judge, I think, of the appellate division of the Supreme Court said that there were some significant legal issues that needed to be dealt with. So 
you know, it's it's a very good step in the right direction for for Mr. Weinstein and his attempts to get this conviction reversed. And Damon, do you know, as you sit here, what issues you think are uh, are being pushed uh, more? I mean, I'm sure he's got a bunch of issues on appeal, as most uh, defendants do. But what do you think his strong arguments are? Sure. I, I think the main there's a couple of them. One of the main arguments was what we refer to in, in Chicago as sort of proof of other crimes evidence. In New York, it's called Molino evidence. And there was a number of there were a number of witnesses who testified at uh, at Mr. Weinstein's trial to establish sort of a pattern. And we took the uh, position that these witnesses should have never testified. It was completely against uh, precedent in New York. The appellate court disagreed with us, but that's a very significant issue, whether or not the court should have allowed all of these witnesses to testify. That's a major issue. And another major issue is one of the jurors who sat on the uh, jury. It was our contention that she was less than candid uh, with her answers, and she should have been struck on a number of occasions. I was the one who actually had to question her uh, during the voir dire process. But those are two of the issues. There's other ones, but I think those are. There's also sort of complicated issues as to whether or not the statute of limitations had run based on residency requirements. But those two are probably the big issues that the that the Supreme Court's going to take up. Um, Jesse Smollett was convicted of five felony counts. We, we, you know, almost saying his name. I just don't want to say it anymore. But um, <laughs> li- of lying to the police, he was sentenced to 150 days. Uh, he was in. He was in for a couple of days, as I recall, and, and then it was stayed. The whole the prison sentence was stayed by the appellate court, who's now considering his appeal. I, I just want to run this past. Is it unusual for a defendant who has a short sentence, a relatively short sentence like this, to get a stay of that sentence in? while the appeal proceeds you know it's happened to me one time not me personally i might add but one of my clients one <laughs> i would hope not <laughs> that, yeah that had a, a relatively short sentence and, and we thought we had some some strong issues we were allowed uh the stay was granted the appeal ended up getting affirmed not reversed and uh the, the client actually had to go back and serve their time it's not something you hear of all that often uh, i've had it happen to some of my clients in federal court but no it's it's not something that's common uh, and the appellate court moved very quickly on that. Yeah, I'm, I was very surprised about that because there are plenty of people who get short sentences, but the appellate process can go for a year and a half or so. And yeah. uh, in the meantime, the person's already served their time. Yeah, so, but, I mean, you can see that you can see why the court would do that, right? They're going to say, look, by the time we get to this decision, this time's going to have run. So it's it's actually fair, you know, regardless of what the public thinks about it. You know, if there are, first of all, I don't think there's a lot of real good issues in that case that right. are going to be successful on appeal. And what you are supposed to show at times is that you have, uh, you know, meritorious arguments. Um, but, you know, the decision is what it is. And if it gets affirmed, one will wonder if you'd have to serve the rest of the sentence. One final uh, uh, question, and I, I, I didn't, I just thought of this now, but it, it, there's a death penalty um, uh, case going on with a Parkland shooter down in Florida. Um, he pled guilty to 17 counts of murder, and now the jury is sitting to determine whether he should get life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. Now, we don't have the death penalty here in, in Illinois anymore, but is it... it I, My feeling on this case is that the case was won or lost based upon the jury selection. How does the jury feel about the death penalty? You're either a fan of it or you're not a fan of it. But I guess my bigger question, Damon, is, is the case won or lost on jury selection in a lot of these high profile, serious, uh, serious cases? 
I mean, you know, jury selection is is often, I think, overlooked by lawyers. But when you really think about it, um, it, it it's the most important part of any case. And it's also the part, the, the, the portion of a case where you really have the least control over it, right? Especially in Illinois. One of the things I did enjoy about going to New York uh, in, in the Weinstein trial is the judge allowed me and the other lawyers to ask a lot of questions of these jurors personally. You know, in Illinois, as you know, Karen, you know, judges really don't let you ask questions. They don't let you conduct voir dire. And that's where you can really try to root out jurors who you think might, you know, be against you. But yeah, I mean, I think in, in, in most cases, not all of them, but when you have the jury pool, there are people on there who are going to acquit. You just have to find out who they are. And, you know, you're also going to have a bunch of people who aren't going to acquit regardless. And the question is, how can you use the limited time you have to, to really get into that? So, no, I, I agree. It's, it's oftentimes won or lost at jury selection. Damon Sharonis, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you give out your contact information in case anyone has any question? I highly recommend his firm uh, if you have somebody who has been charged with a crime. Sure. My number is 312-663-4644, and you can find us at SharonisLaw.com. Karen, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and hope to see you soon.